This podcast is called A Safe Place to Talk About Race and Faith. It's hosted by Janet Hagberg and Pastor Kelly Chapman. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Janet. (laughs) Welcome to our listeners. This is a tender and sometimes contentious subject of racial conversations and our faith. And I would like to welcome my dear friend, Pastor Kelly Chapman, who has been my pastor and also one of my finest teachers about the subjects of race and faith. I am so grateful, so very grateful that you're willing to do this podcast with me, Kelly. You've been a mentor to me with your open and gentle and honest approach to race relations. Would you like to say hello to our listeners and maybe tell them what um, prompted you to be part of this with me? Yeah, sure, sure. Hello, everyone. And um, I just, um, any opportunity to do anything with you, Janet, oh. is just a <laughs> gift. And I, I, I love this. And, um, and I think for me, the entry point of this, it's more about faith than about race. Uh, because for me, race is a human construct. And, uh, and faith helped me to figure out how to navigate that, to be uh, more fully human than how um, that construct um, biases uh, the world to see people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you. Well, that's beautiful right there. We can stop right here. <laughs> um, race issues, um, particularly between black and white people, are complex and heavy with unresolved feelings and huge historical inequities. And I don't pretend to have an easy answer because these are very complex issues. In fact, the reason I call this podcast a safe place to talk about race and faith is that so often these conversations are daunting or they induce fear. And I have to admit, as a white person, I mostly avoid them rather than feeling the shame, guilt, or fear that might come, you know, come with them. So as I've observed this arena of race relations over the past several years, there seem to be three prevailing methods that open these conversations, educational, confrontational, and relational. And all of three of these have helped people and are valuable. But Kelly, you have helped me to move beyond my fear by engaging me with relational and educational ways of looking at these issues, and you have agreed to take risks alongside me, and I really appreciate that. I also believe that our mutual faith has played a central role in how we have approached these issues over the years. And I found that racial conversations are a way for me to search for and find God in the midst of the fear and the confusion and the healing. So for you, our listeners, uh, Kelly and I are going to show you how we took a small step together into a racial conversation arena. And before we dive any deeper, would you like to say anything about your perspective on our race conversations? Is there anything else you want to say, Kelly? No, it's just um, the intimacy of our relationship and um, just walking into this conversation and, and I think I would add to what you've said so far is, the, uh, is also the issue of power and, and how race um, is kind of surrounded by the issue of power and the power to give voice to race. And, and a lot of times we avoid the conversation because of how power is used or misused. Mm-hmm. And um, so 
it can be a challenging topic to, to navigate. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm glad to uh, uh, be in this conversation with you today. <laughs> Thank you. So a few years ago, Kelly and I had a rich and maybe a, a risky experience that seemed to open a few doors for us and to reach over some racial boundaries. When we interviewed each other at a local suburban church using this podcast title, A Safe Place to Talk About Race and Faith. Now we're going to do parts of that interview with you, hoping that it may open doors for you as well. And just preparing for this now, as well as when we did it several years ago, has been a healing and inviting experience for me and hopefully for Kelly as well. So I'm eager to share it with you listeners because I want to underscore the rich gifts that I've received from Kelly in doing this work with him and also from another mentor mentor who I'll mention later. So Kelly, do you want to say anything about anticipating our foray into that white suburban church to talk about race and faith? Uh, Again, it was was so important that we did that together and you know, you you accompanied me into a community that I didn't know, um, into uh, people with whom you had relationship, and um, so it was really about the accompaniment of, mm-hmm. of that experience and doing that together because I really didn't know those people. Mm-hmm. Um, That's why it was kind of risky, and I really appreciated yeah, that. Yeah, thank you. So we'll begin our interview here, and I'd invite all of us to think about a simple spiritual song as background music. And this is a song we sing at the at Redeemer where Kelly's a pastor and I'm a member. And it's called, and I won't sing it. And do you want to sing it, Kelly? Or? Uh, no, we okay. don't want to lose okay. people. <laughs> That's what I'm saying too. So it's, I want Jesus to walk with me. I want Jesus to walk with me. All along my pilgrim journey, I want Jesus to walk with me. And then the other verses are, when I'm in trouble, I want Jesus to walk with me. When I'm in sorrow, I want Jesus to walk with me. And when I'm in trials, I want Jesus to walk with me. So we want Jesus to walk with us on this journey of this interview. Amen, Kelly? Amen. (laughs) Okay, so now let's give our listeners a sampling of our interview experience Mm -hmm. by interviewing each other. So Kelly, what was your first experience of a white person? Oh, um, so for me, it goes back to my parents moved to the industrial north from the agricultural south when I was like four years old. They moved from Tennessee to Detroit as part of that great black um, migration. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I remember I was like four years old um, sitting on the steps uh, while my mother was in the garden and a, a little boy... Um, who was white. Uh, his name was Jimmy Anderson. And he came over to my mother and he saw me on the steps sitting there. And, and he asked my mother if he could come and play with me. And, uh, and I felt violated because uh, I, I, I was so comfortable where I was, just uh, being who I was. And I don't remember ever seeing a, a white person or, you know, conscious of that prior to that. And, uh, and so he, that became a friendship that moved me out of my comfortable place uh, to walking with Jimmy, uh, who became my best friend uh, through uh, elementary school. And uh, so that bond. And, and the neighborhood that I grew up in was primarily uh, African-American, uh, Polish 
um, a pretty diverse, but segregated. And uh, so that journey with Jimmy, uh, remember, uh, we smoked cigarettes on the way to school together and did things that we weren't supposed to do. Uh, but then, it, uh, and so Jimmy would come over all the time. And then, uh, and, and we would have him over for dinner. And uh, and and so one time, they, uh, Jimmy asked if he could come over for dinner. And uh, and I just went and asked my mother, assuming that the answer was going to be yes. And my mother said, well, why don't you ever go to Jimmy's house? And then, uh, and I had never thought about that. And uh, and so I asked Jimmy, you know, uh, why didn't I ever get invited to his house? And then he said, well, my parents are prejudiced. And he said, I can't invite you over. And so that was a, like a, a clear moment about, um, I don't know if I would say that was power, but certainly a prejudice and um, uh, and. So that that was that was really a, a clear moment, uh, and but but that relationship with Jimmy w- was a relationship that pulled me out of the normal and uh, and 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 the power of relationship. How about you, Janet? Oh, yeah. Well, my first re- my first experience of a black person was in elementary school. I can't believe this. We we had one black boy in our all-white elementary school, and he walked by my house every morning on the way to school alone. And one day my mother said, you know, Howard shouldn't have to walk to school alone. Maybe you should walk with him. Mm. And I was shocked, you know. I mean, this was a whole new experience for me, and I did walk with him some. I don't remember a lot about that, but I do remember my mother saying that like, Wow, and that was my first understanding of people who were different from me, because I just had no had had no other contact. So I was I was really moved by that. Even now, as I think back, that my mother, a product of the of the post war fifties, you know, segregated life, would would suggest that. So something was brewing in her that was a wider world. But out of the same mouth, my mother's mouth, came the, these other words were, which were prejudice of a, a different kind of prejudice. And that was that one of her friends in her sewing club was Catholic. And she said to me, once you know, my friend Dorothy is a really nice woman, even if she is Catholic. Mm-hmm. So it's very complex. And I don't understand to this day how my mother had the foresight or wisdom to suggest that I walk to school with uh-huh. Howard. But I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that um, from her. Uh, I'm interested that in both of our stories, our, our mothers had a role yeah. in thinking about how they must have had a, a, an understanding of the systems, the societal systems we're living in, mm-hmm. and they they directed us in some way to maybe a, a larger, system, a yeah, larger world. consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wow. Okay, so could you give an example or two of how you've personally been discriminated against? Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> I know, this could go on and on, couldn't it? And of course, is uh, Jimmy's story. Yeah. That uh, is uh, um, just a, a beginning point. Oh, I um, One of the stories I think about is uh, when I, I lived in Portland, Oregon, and I was invited to do a wedding, and, uh, and it was at the, 
you know, some big fancy restaurant in, in downtown Seattle. And um, the daughter, uh, the woman who I, for whom I did the marriage was a former student whose father was the physician for the Seattle Mariners, I think. And uh, so it was a wonderful um, wedding and reception with this fancy sit-down dinner and everything. And it was time to, to, to leave. And so I was went down to get the car while my wife was saying uh, goodbye to people. And I was waiting for the, uh, the valet to bring back my car. So you know, I'm there in my suit and feeling pretty, pretty proud of myself for having done this you know, powerful wedding. And then uh, while I was waiting for the valet to bring my car, this young white guy uh, dressed in a suit walks over to me and he tries to give me the keys to his car, to, assuming that I was the valet. So it was that experience of kind of being at the pinnacle of, you know, making it in our society, and um, and then that, to just be reduced to the assumption that, well, I must be the valet. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, it's really that power differential that mm -hmm. uh, I think that doesn't matter how much or how far one ascends. Uh, when you're black, um, there there are assumptions um, uh, about all the deficits, uh, and it can change in a nanosecond. That's oh. the, that's one of the. Uh, I, that's well, why I remember that story. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, it isn't just that it changes; it's that uh, for me, I wasn't prepared. Mm -hmm. You know, and at any moment, um, mm -hmm. uh, that things that one isn't prepared for, it's it's easier when you expect it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the stigma of being in the South, right? And mm -hmm. Malcolm X said the South begins at the Canadian border. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so just that ongoing awareness. And if one it isn't aware or prepared for that, it can it can drive you crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Janet? Well, do you want mm -hmm. to tell any other? Do you have any? Uh, I, I don't know how much time oh. we have. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll go with that. <clears throat> so one of the ways that I was discriminated against as a woman <clears throat> was when I was newly married. Uh, this was a shock to me because I was pretty independent. I couldn't get credit in my own name. Mm. So I didn't really have an identity according to a big department store in Minneapolis. And then there mm. were three restaurants right in the city that I was not allowed to enter mm. because they were men only. Wow. And one of them, I could go in the back door and sit in a separate room. But you know how that feels? Well, you do. Yeah. Uh, and I just had not had that experience before where I wasn't, not only wasn't welcome, I was not, I couldn't even enter. And then I, uh, a few years later, when I had started my, um, my own business, I went to the bank to get my first, a loan to get my first computer. And the man that was at the front of the, bank said that I, I needed my husband's signature on the loan in order to get it. When well, my husband was in graduate school, he was unemployed. And so he wasn't going to be able to pay back the loan, and I couldn't get the loan without a signature, and I refused to, to be put in that position, you know, but it was so humiliating for me. And then I've had some sexual harassment experiences that I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later, yeah. but um, yeah, it's yeah. that not expecting to be yeah, treated that yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Can I tell another one now that sure, you're Sure, now that, that you've got a ripe one, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was traveling, and I, I went to South Carolina, and I, I did it. To, it was part of a sabbatical, to, um, and I wanted to visit the Gullah people. And this is a rich story about um, mm-hmm. the, the African-American experience, people from uh, Sierra Leone that um, came as slaves, and they still have the same dialect that... Uh, so I was visiting there, and I had maybe about a week where I traveled through the area. And then I was driving back to the airport in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. And I saw this big sign about South Carolina barbecue. And I'd been there a week, and I hadn't tried it, so I'd have to try this. And so there's, I remember it said Maurice's Barbecue. And so I, I drove uh, to the restaurant, and uh, I remember parking my car, and I remember seeing a big truck that was out in um, and I, I thought it was kind of awkward that the driver seemed to be looking at me. And I went into the restaurant and it happened to be a buffet. And so I ordered a meal and, and, I, um, and I had a book with me. So I, I sat down with my meal and I, and I was reading while I was eating. And then I looked up for my book and all of a sudden the section that I was sitting in was completely empty. And it had people there before. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, and then, uh, and then, um, and then I remember going back and I uh, was at a, I was preaching and I happened to tell that story about being in South Carolina and that was a very subtle story, and there was a a, a professor who was from South Carolina. He came up to me, and he told me the name of the restaurant without me having having named it, and so, and he told me the story about the discrimination. Mm. My, my point about that is like even ways that are not like publicized, the experience of, the, of, of that racism, and it, it, it's real. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, so that was, that was one that um, had a big impact on me yeah, personally. Yeah. So what was one of your hardest experiences with a white person? There, um, one that comes to mind is um, so I'm a pastor of a congregation, and I and I invited another pastor to come in and uh, become a, a pastor with in the congregation with me, and uh, he's white, and and it was an opportunity for him because there was some rules that we were bending to make that possible for him, and then uh, and then in our congregation where we as we aspire to be a diverse congregation. And so we, we play with the hymns and we kind of mix that we don't just do European hymns, but we add gospel and African-American. And uh, so I realized that one of those worship services that I, he changed what I had uh, in terms of our worship. And so that next Monday I had sat him down in my office and said, well, what was going on? Why'd you do that? And he said, well, I, I felt like you were going against the tradition, so he changed that. Mm-hmm. And I, that, again, goes to me, the issue of power, that, that because I was messing with the tradition, that he felt like he had the power to usurp my authority. It was clearly that I'm the super pass- supervisor, uh, super, uh, senior pastor. So that experience about how 
ingrained power is. And I want to tell one other story. When I was in college, it really struck me. So um, many of my friends were white in college. And, uh, and I remember uh, just a very casual conversation that one of the white women uh, said to the others in the group that they wouldn't mind me when, when we become a, adults. And uh, they wouldn't mind me living next door to them. And it struck me that here we are in college and already they're assuming who is worthy to live next door to them. And just thinking about that, that sense of privilege and entitlement that even at the age of 19, 20 years in, in college, already assuming who is uh, worthy to live next door to you. And that's so, so different than I think how I or people of, of color would imagine having that sense of, of, uh, of self and mm -hmm. community and privilege. So, um, how about, do you have some examples? I do, <laughs> a hard one. Uh, I was working at a new college that had just come in to, um, it had just been started in the last few years. I was on the original faculty and I was an administrator for the, one of the vice presidents who happened to be a black man with a PhD in vocational rehabilitation. And um, he sexually assaulted me, um, usually after hours, asked me to work later. And then sometimes he'd ask me to work later, and then he'd drive me home so I wouldn't have to take the, the bus home. And so several times he sexually assaulted me, and that was a very difficult mm -hmm. experience, partly because I, sexual harassment wasn't in the dictionary yet. And my husband was in graduate school at the time, so I was the major mm -hmm. wage earner. And I thought if I said anything, he would say that I was being racially biased. And so I felt totally trapped and totally scared, and I didn't feel like I could give up my job mm -hmm. because I was the major wage earner. So I, mm -hmm. that was a very frightening experience for me. And it happened to me uh, with another boss as well, a different way. But before I was 30, I had been sexually harassed by three bosses in the mm -hmm. social service field. So hard stories, mm -hmm. hard stories. Mm -hmm. Um, so what was your first, we're going to shift gears a little bit here, okay. What was your most memorable or first healing experience with a white person? So maybe this is part of the segue from the former part of this. And that, and, and I, I really want to wrestle with this, and maybe you can help me, because I think when I think about race and white people, I tend to not take it so seriously or, or personally because it's so systemic. It's like, I, I expect white people to be uh, prejudiced or racist. And so when those incidents happen, maybe it's a buffer, but I, I, I it's kind of hard to say, but I don't have high expectations for white people mm -hmm. to be more than, than, uh, than white. So, because I think uh, there's so much work to do in terms of to have an identity that's greater than that. So could you help me and ask the question again? What was a, a healing experience that you've had mm. with a white person or a positive experience that was personal or maybe, or however you want to Yeah, yeah, no, I, it's like, 
I, part of me wants to say there's so many because, I mean, white people are also human. And, you know, I mean, I've had so many interactions in terms of the, the majority of people at school. And, and this is also, in my experience, I know this isn't true for every black person, so many of the places of, of opportunity in life, whether it's school or work or church, they're white people. And so those interactions are, those are pretty much every day for me. And, and also, as much as I've had personal, wonderful experience with people, those have also, with white people, those have also been white people who have disappointed me uh, around the issue of, of race because of a lack of consciousness. And so when I, it's kind of hard to to lift up one um, or or for me to think about um, you know just one well you told uh, me a wonderful story about when you were little and your friend invited you to his church and you came and you heard the singing I don't know if you want to tell uh, that story, uh, yeah um, so but my uh, yes my the friend was so when I grew up in um, Detroit, we didn't go to church uh, except on Easter, uh, because our parents had just resettled and in, in into a new community, a new area, and uh, and I was in seventh grade and I was listening to my classmate, a, a African American boy named Willie Woods, and I was sitting as he was describing how pretty the girls were in his Sunday school, and I wasn't very religious, but. And I heard Willie describing how pretty those girls were. I felt a conversion <laughs> coming on. And I, visit, I invited myself to visit Willie's church. And so, uh, and I walked to the, to the church according to Willie's direction. And the, long, uh, uh, the short of a long story is the entire church was white. And I was standing there feeling exposed and trying to figure out how I was going to make my exit. Because this is like 1964. And that tape was going in my head about where you belong and where you don't belong. And before I could escape, two Sunday school teachers came and they gave me some instruction about somebody named Willie Woods. And, and then they walked me to the front of this entire Sunday school and the Sunday school began to sing, there's a welcome here, there's a welcome here, there's a Christian welcome here. And that's like a vista was opened up for me of a, something, an experience I'd never had before about the love of God and community and belonging. But again, that wasn't an individual, that was a, that was a belief, that was a statement of beloved community. And, and what captured that wasn't an individual, it was, it was a community of children and Sunday school teachers. And, and I think that that's why I'm here today. It's, uh, it, it's that the power of a statement of who we aspire to be. And, um, uh, but that doesn't always get uh, sustained by, by our individual um, interactions, especially with, between black and white people. Um, and again, uh, yeah, maybe get too philosophical here, but it, uh, it, there's this, the consciousness that it takes to really overcome 
the unconsciousness of racism is uh, it's a tall order. And it's a tall order for me as a black person to relax and assume that white people are going to um, be at that that level of consciousness to really um, that I that I would let my guard down. Um, yeah, and how about you, my friend? Well, you have been one of the people that has been uh, a healing experience for me, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and also, when I was teaching um, a leadership class. We were inviting everyone in the class to find someone that they were uncomfortable with or maybe afraid of and ask that person to be their mentor for about mm -hmm. three or four months. And so one of my fears, which I had to be honest about, was young black men with dreads and low-hanging <laughs> pants. <laughs> so I invited William at Redeemer to be my mentor for three months. And he was shocked, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure. So one of the things we did is we both sat down and told each other our stories. And I listened to his story, and he listened to my story, and they were both powerful stories. And I think it was a shock for both of us to feel like mm -hmm. we had actually some some things in common about our stories. And then he taught me how to break dance, which I thought was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then I then I was telling him that I was considering moving over to um, the north side. And what what did he recommend for me? Uh, if I moved and he said to me don't stay home and I thought oh okay so what he was saying was don't isolate stay mm -hmm. in the community be part of the community and then I said to him well what if I get afraid and he said I've got your back and he gave me his phone number mm. and I just thought okay so this is a really important step for me toward looking at my fears mm -hmm. and going toward my fears and trying to embrace them to find out what I can learn mm -hmm. and how I can connect um, at a deeper heart level. And I think that's what helps me with any relations um, is knowing the story and finding any kind of continuity in our stories. Mm -hmm. Can you say, what role do you think vulnerability has to do with that? Oh, it's huge. It's absolutely huge yeah. to be able to be real, be honest, to be vulnerable, to uh, take a risk. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a that's a huge first step, and and mm -hmm. I'm usually afraid of doing that, so I have mm -hmm. to look fear in the face mm -hmm. in order to do that. And then another piece, which I tell, that's a, a story about you quite often because I love this story. But I was talking to you about racial reconciliation and some ideas I had about maybe conversations about that. And in the same conversation, I was talking about the multiracial quilt group that I was in at Redeemer and had been for several years. And he said, well, Janet, that's racial reconciliation, your quilt mm -hmm. group, and learning about people and doing things together and learning about what, you know, just l learning. And I and it just just made me really pause mm -hmm. and think, mm -hmm. yeah. It's not, it doesn't always have to be a programmatic thing. It can be being in contact with people, anyone who's different, but doing something you love to do, you just learn a lot, mm -hmm. uh, a lot that way. So um, my, the next question, how has your faith informed race relations for you? Oh, it, it, it's, uh, it's at the very center because uh, I, I don't think I'd, I think I'd give up if I didn't have faith and that um that it it's there's got to be a better way 
than the way that the dominant culture, the empire says that we're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And um, and so there have been really wonderful experiences. So I was really blessed to have grown up as a child um, with the Mar with the civil rights movement. And, and the first uh, pastor, image of a pastor that I had was seeing, seeing Martin Luther King at a pulpit and hearing, you know, the word of God connected to civil rights and, you know, community. So, so faith is like paramount with that. And my parents were faithful people. They, you know, they didn't go to church uh, very much when we were younger, but they were, they were, they were, they were people of faith. Um, and, um, and then outside just the people that I as admired or aspired to be like were people of faith. So it's, it, it's always been there. And then what Martin Luther King talked about in terms of beloved community, that's like, yeah, that's like, that's it. And that's, that's what a, that's what when I think about the kingdom of God or I think about um, a, a, a space where where black people can be safe with white people is in that that understanding of beloved community where we see the best of ourselves in one another and it's very aspirational and so it's not like uh, I don't have to experience it every day but it, but but it's 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 something to, to move toward. I'm trying not to use um, violent metaphors in terms of like target or, <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. How about you? And it. Um, well, I think partly my basic faith principles have come into play here, like love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but more than that, I think it was my um, spontaneous connection that got. Mm -hmm. Us, got you and I together and Cheryl when I first met you and then I kept coming to Redeemer having been in a multiracial church now for like 17 mm -hmm. years um, I feel like just being there called me to open my heart mm -hmm. and to open my life and my faith to new experiences I mean just hearing a sermon from an African American mm -hmm. pastor's perspective is different from a white suburban mm -hmm. or even a you know a city suburban or a city um, white pastor so that has really made a difference for me and I know a lot of people don't have natural connections but that's been just a really important one even though I go back and forth to um, other churches and then I could always go to you with what I thought were my dumb questions because I think a lot of people have questions about race and they don't want to ask them because they don't want to appear to be stupid or whatever and you always honored my questions and and explain things to me or ask me other questions and so I felt like that was a really safe place to open up and then we went to the race exhibit together and you said you learned something at the race mm -hmm. exhibit and I learned a lot mm -hmm. at the race exhibit and it wasn't in a threatening way it was just like oh you know I had no idea that those things happened in post-world war ii mm -hmm. uh, housing and stuff so I like I thought it was really important to learn together and to learn and then sometimes um it got kind of scary, like during Black Lives Matter, when our church was like on the firing line. I mean, there it was. And we had people at church going and sleeping at the precinct, you know, so it got a little messy and it got hard. But what I realized, and you're talking about the beloved community, we did that together. 
Mm-hmm. And it, we had differences. There were differences in the church even, but we did it together. We faced the unknown. And we did some healing together during that time as well. So I think just being in a community where um, I'm, I'm not the prevailing uh, culture mm-hmm. is really a, is a, just an unbelievable learning experience mm-hmm. and really good for my faith and my soul. Mm-hmm. And it also has, I have to say, in the longer run, altered my worldview. I listen to the news differently. It's altered my assumptions. It's altered the way I cook. It's altered the fabric I mm-hmm. choose for my quilts <laughs> and my music mm-hmm. and my friendships, mm-hmm. even my way of reading scripture. So it's really just gently over time more and more permeated the way I see the world. Now, if I'm in an all-white, a room with all-white people, I notice, like, Mm. there aren't any black people here. There aren't any Latinos here. You know, like, okay, what does this mean? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and one of, first I want to say you are wonderful. Second, what you just said in terms of how you think when you enter into a room and you notice that there aren't any black people or whatever, you're thinking like I do. Mm -hmm. You think like black people do Mm -hmm. in terms of, that's that's an awareness mm-hmm. that um, I, I just want to uh, affirm. Um, and then also uh, about the um, like the tension of Black Lives Matter and thinking about you know the the fear or that uneasiness that one might feel of being um, at a protest or whatever. So do you think that that's more? Uh, a sense of fear than what black people feel every day going into corporate America yeah. or into churches that are not welcoming. Or mm-hmm. So um, so in a lot of ways, uh, the Black Lives Matter experience is an everyday reality yeah. for black people in white spaces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I don't mm-hmm. experience that, and my experience as a woman in a white male world mm-hmm. wasn't the same because I was part of that, you know, that white piece. Mm-hmm. And, but it's real. I'm really grateful for what I have learned and how it's and it has somewhat permeated my life. The journey continues. The journey continues, yeah. <laughs> like doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what would you like to say to white people? I think I just did. Okay, term, you did. Yeah, um, that. Uh, that uh, being courageous is a part of being faithful, and and we live in a dominant culture that encourages people to not be encur- uh, courageous, to mm-hmm. to dummy down. To, um, that that whiteness is more what frames how we live our everyday lives than than authentic relationship and vulnerability and um, just really really living like we believe that we're children of God. Mm. Um, the beloved community. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful metaphor. It's a beautiful metaphor. Now we just <laughs> make it a reality. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kelly, thank you for being so honest and real and welcoming this adventure, and thank you for telling your stories. I really appreciate them. And some I've heard before, and some I've are new, and I just, um, you know, we keep on moving on. I'm so grateful to you for continuing our journey toward more and deeper relationships across racial boundaries. So I'd like to say to our listeners, be gentle with yourselves, especially if you're afraid of this topic and you consider reaching out. 
Try to keep your heart open in order to learn and to have empathy and compassion as you do so. So now we're going to shift a little bit um, beyond our interview to more um, of our in-depth experience of conversations, racial conversations or reconciliation experiences. So Kelly, I invite you to start by telling a story that is compelling for you. Well, I feel like I'm, uh, well, I feel like every time I have a conversation, many times when I have a conversation with white people, it is a racial conversation. So it's a matter of the level of consciousness about that because it's not common to have conversations across uh, race or, or across culture. Un- unfortunately, I'd say that. And I was thinking that most of my conversations about race are with other black people. And I'm trying to, it's like with my sister Babette, who's amazing. And I process with her, like, am I crazy? Or, you know, I'm looking for validation of the experience so that we can continue, or I can continue the journey. And, uh, and so I don't have many race conversations with white people. It's almost like the conversation is happens in being present to one another. And so I think about riding in the car with someone. I think about joking. I think about those things that, that go into deeper levels of friendship. And and there's like a healing trust that's that's reinforced. Uh, that we're more than the racial construct that that we're shaped by. So I, um, so one is that I don't, I don't know that I have many conversations about race with white people, and I also would say in my congregation, um. We have uh, about 20 people that are uh, faithfully having conversations uh, and doing a podcast on seeing white and um, and uh, white people and and black people that are having conversations about reading white fragility. And so in those settings, the, the co- those conversations are happening. And uh, but this is kind of a challenging question because what I'm aware of when I really talk intimately and vulnerably about race, I'm really I'm I'm talking to a black person, either talking to my my wife or my sister. I don't know, I really don't know many white people that I feel like are prepared for the depth of the conversation, and not mm-hmm. intellectually but mm-hmm. emotionally. Mm-hmm. And um, and what what I feel like I need is not intellectual conversation. Mm-hmm. around race I need, I need the the vulnerable conversation mm-hmm. around race the mm-hmm. the the intimacy um, and the word that you used recently empathy mm-hmm. so those are but uh, I really appreciate that you're saying um, being in the car with or being friends with or doing things with your white friends that develops your friendship at a deeper level and that's what you told me is <laughs> racial reconciliation you know and that's a part of it you can have those deeper conversations of course and that would be really good but it's there are a lot of levels yeah yeah and and i would just say 
it's hard to answer this question because those car rides and those those are that's like breathing. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I have those all the time. Mm-hmm. That that doesn't stand out to me. Right. And, and I'm a pastor of a congregation where you know eighty percent of the people are white. Um, um, and I mean that's all that's all wonderful. Mm-hmm. But how do we go? How do we go to that deeper place of the systemic things that mm-hmm. um, that white people don't natu- don't naturally uh, have an awareness of? Mm-hmm. Um, um, would you um, share your story and um, of a current experience that you have? I will. So this is one of those deeper conversations, and I I didn't uh, plan it. And I just um, was invited into an opportunity. So I want to talk about my, my, uh, one of my other mentors, Joseph, who is uh, an artistic mentor of mine. And I want to say I probably would never have had this conversation with him if I hadn't been at, um, at Redeemer Church with you for these last several years. So that's the backdrop. So he specializes in hand-sewn tapestries, and his name is Sunshine Joe Mallard. Mm-hmm. He lives in Louisville, Kentucky. And another serendipitous event got us connected. I love how God works. And we've been quite close friends for several years. He's a mentor to me. So I value his insights and his continual support of my artwork, my sacred artwork, especially because I have felt very insecure about it mm-hmm. in the art world. And he's also a man of deep faith. Um, he was mentored by his parents and his grandmother, who grew up as a slave in Mississippi. So that's how he learned his, his tapestry, his, um, his handwork is from her. So a few months ago, he sent me a short video, very short video, maybe only three minutes long, by a white woman strongly encouraging, like passionately encouraging white people to reach across racial racial divides mm-hmm. and find ways to have conversations and know when she said and love black people. That was her, her word. And so um, I just felt like it was so invitational and so impassioned that I, I pondered it and I thought, well, he wouldn't have sent this to me without some, some invitation. Mm-hmm. So I asked him if he had ever had a racially reconciling conversation with a white person. And he said no, but he wished he could. So mm-hmm. I saw that as another little door opening. I was a little frightened mm-hmm. about that. But I asked him if he'd be willing to tell me about discrimination experiences he had growing up in Mississippi. And he said that he would. And he did tell me some very sad stories. He emailed this to me. And then he told me a couple of cruel stories. And... Mm-hmm all happening while he was still in high school. And then he added, though, in the middle of all that, that his parents and his grandmother specifically had taught him not to hate white people, but to forgive them. This was amazing to me. So I thanked him for that, but I also sensed that telling these stories was taking a toll on him. And so I said, maybe we should stop there. And he pondered that, and he said that um, they were they were hard, and he it brought up a lot of memories. So I pondered um, that um, and what he had told me in his stories for several days, and then I prayed about a response to him. And I asked him if it would be okay with him if I could respond to the stories that I had heard. And he said that would be fine, so we made Mm -hmm. a telephone conversation. 
And first I responded to his personal experiences with tears. And I mean, they were just so sad. I can't even talk about them. And then I gently shared from my perspective, and I had thought about this pretty deeply, four major times in our country's history in which my people had deliberately and unconscionably done things to mm -hmm. harm his people very intentionally. And I stated what those times were and some specific things in each of those times that I knew about. And um, then in tears after each segment, I asked God and Joseph to, for forgiveness and mercy. And it was, it was a, a, an unbelievable experience. And I chose um, slavery, the Jim Crow South, post-World War II, and then current experiences. And it was mm -hmm. so ironic because on the day I did this conversation with him, the country of Belgium was, was publicly apologizing to their colonialized mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. countries in Africa for what they had done. I just thought, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So uh, I just spent time with each one of those four things, telling the stories. And if he had been here present and I could have washed his feet, I would. I mean, it mm -hmm. was just one of the holiest experiences I've mm -hmm. ever had. Mm -hmm. And he was so gracious. He was so gracious. He, he even said the very fact that I was willing to own what my people had done without being part of it all myself was, um, was very tender for him and that he remembered his grandparents, his grandmother saying not to hate white people but to forgive them. Mm. So after that, we both agreed that we would rest from that experience for a while and see what evolved for us in prayer and what each one of us might do to take that experience uh, a step further. And so then a couple of weeks later, he had another racially reconciling conversation with another white woman where he lives. And shortly after that, serendipitously, a Presbyterian seminary invited him to connect with fifth graders at a summer camp. So every day all summer, he went and had racial mm -hmm. conversations, just opened the question and answer, asked the kids if they had been discriminated against, and it, I mean, it was just a powerful summer. And now he was just invited to um, work on these issues with a statewide clergy association on mm -hmm. racial conversations and how to open them and what, what they might, where they might go. And now recently he's been asked to be the artist in residence at the University of Louisville. So he's working with 25 young freshmen, men, all of diverse cultural experiences, using his tapestry art to help them express who they are and be aware of themselves and other cultures. And he's using neckties, and each guy gets to embellish his necktie with this embroidery technique that he's developed himself. And it's, it's just amazing. Now they're going to make a video of that class that he's teaching all year and interview young men and kind of trace them. And then they're going to put that into a documentary and make that available to universities across the country. And then the best part is that the mm -hmm. state of Mississippi, where he experienced all this cruel segregation, has now invited him to be public. They're going to honor him publicly wow. statewide at a big dinner in November. Yeah. And he, he just finds that amazing, as I do, you know, mm -hmm. that that state is now all these years later going to notice who he is and... Um, and what he's experienced. So for me, um, what I've done as a result of that is I've shared my experience, my racial conversation with him, with several of my friends, to try to just be aware of how important that was in 
And if anybody else has an opportunity to do that, mm-hmm. they might. And then, of course, this podcast <laughs> with you, Kelly, is another way that I'm hoping that um, to instill hope and empathy. Um, so I thank you and Sunshine Joe for being part of this, um, this opportunity for the telling. And there's one more story that's a very powerful story um, that I'd like to end our time together on. And it's a story of reconciliation and immense courage on the part of both people involved. And I found this story to be quite profound. So I want to do my thank yous now and then tell the story at the end so that we will just end on that story. So I want to thank you for being here, Kelly. It's been an incredible honor to share this with you and to thank you for all your mentoring to me thank you for being you and thank you for opening your heart to me and thank you to joseph for inviting me to heal further and to you stephanie williams o'brien for producing this podcast and your lead stories um, podcasts are so incredible and thank you listeners who have gotten this far for opening yourselves to these stories of how we face our fears and move forward, sometimes messily and sometimes gently. So please stay for this last story because it's really worth it. And I feel now, especially that Jesus, as in the song that we started with, has been here today and has walked with us all the way. So here is the story I'd like to honor, the story of two courageous people and a way of healing deeply from a quite a different perspective. So I have a woman friend who was raped at knife point by a black man when she was a young adult. And this is, of course, one of the most horrendous things that can happen to anyone, uh, and especially a woman. And a bit later in her life experience, this resurfaced, and she went um, to a therapist, a very gifted therapist, and had a long and deep journey of healing uh, for this experience. And along the way, her therapist, when she got to a point of being healed enough that she was ready to befriend her body, her therapist suggested that she, in part of a way of doing that, go and have a massage, which I don't think she'd ever had. So she chose a suburban spa to do the, have this massage. And when she got there and, and got to the massage area, she found out that the person that was going to be doing her massage was a black man. And she clutched, as you can imagine. She clutched inside, and she very politely told him that she didn't think she could go through with the massage. And he just was very kind. He asked her if that she was free to leave, but he asked her if she would just sit with him for a minute so that he could chat with her. And so in the conversation, he opened it by suggesting that maybe she had had a negative or maybe even a dangerous conversation with one of his black brothers. And, of course, she started to weep and said that that was the case. So she got to talk more about her story, and he listened. And then again he said, you're free to leave. And he understood that, and he also very gently told her that one of the reasons he had decided to become a massage therapist was to be part of the healing of what some of his black brothers had done. And she was stunned. She was stunned and she was so deeply moved. And then her courage came up again for her at this juncture. And she decided with that story that he told to go forward with the massage. And it became a turning point in her recovery and perhaps in his life as well. But his courage to do this work 
gave her that opportunity. So I just say, bless you, brother. Bless you, sister. Amen.